0: Have you ever had a surprisingly hostile response from someone, when you thought that you were actually doing something nice? I remember when I was about 14, opening a door for a girl at school, uh, I said to her, Ladies first, I thought I was being nice, uh, but she slapped me in the face, <coughs> told me that she was a feminist. I thought I'd learnt my lesson, and so suddenly, years later, I was on a French exchange, and a French woman opened the door for me. I went through and I said, Thank you, in French. Or at least that's what I thought I'd said. Uh, she scowled at me with a really nasty stare, as though I, you know, said something really awful. I asked my pen friend, who I was staying with, why it was I got such a hostile reaction. Turned out I got it slightly wrong in the way that I was pronouncing "thank you a lot." I wasn't saying that. I'd actually said "thank you, nice bottom," <laughs> which is why she'd uh, been so hostile. Sometimes you can do things that you think are really nice, really loving things. But instead of appreciation, we get got hostility. We're moving into a section in Mark that focuses on the hostility and opposition that Jesus and his disciples encountered. There are still positive responses here as we go through, but more and more we'll see these negative responses to Jesus and the good news build as we go along. And as we do, it's a reminder that negative responses, hostile responses, are tragic but normal. Even the master himself was not welcomed by everyone. He was rejected even by those that we might expect to be his biggest allies. And we see that especially in our first point uh, this morning, rejected at home. Let me read to you verses 1 to 6 again. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offence. Jesus here returns to his hometown, probably alluding to Nazareth. He preaches in the synagogue, possibly the sermon recorded for us in Luke 4 from Isaiah. And the people are absolutely astonished at his preaching. But instead of praising God for his wonderful gift, they begin to take offence. We see that in verse 4. Now you could read verses uh, 1 and 2 positively. You could think, you know, where did this man get these things from? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such amazing works being done by his hands? It could sound really positive as though, wow, this is great. But Mark makes this clear this is not the case. The way they talk about him in verse 3 also gives us that impression that they're hostile. Whereas others recognise him as rabbi, teacher, leader. These people recognise him as carpenter, tradesman, literally manual labour, labourer. They make mention of his family, but no mention of Joseph. Now it could be because Joseph has died by this point, that's almost certainly true. But you'd still normally refer to someone by their father rather than their mother. Could it be that they're actually referring back to rumours of this questionable parentage? Where'd this illegitimate manual labourer get all this intelligent sounding stuff from? Huh? Sounds suspect to me, I'm not following him. The rest of the world might not know where he's from but we do. Even his family at this point. Do not seem to believe in him. We saw that back in chapter 3. Perhaps that's why reference is made to his brothers and sisters. But they're also given names here. Classic Israelite Jewish names. They're the Greek versions of Jacob, Joseph, Judah and Simeon. In lots of ways there they represent classic Israel. Unbelieving and wayward here. And at this point even his brothers and sisters are part of that unbelieving home crowd. His whole hometown takes offense, stumbles, falls over him. If this is the incident from Luke 4, they even go as far as plotting to throw Jesus off a cliff. That is a hostile response, isn't it, to what Jesus is saying. Jesus explains what's going on in verse 4. Jesus said, and Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household." This has always been the way, says Jesus. Think of the Old Testament, Jeremiah in the Old Testament. He was threatened by his hometown, that if he kept on prophesying, prophesying, they would kill him. Likewise, Jeremiah's family, we're told, dealt treacherously with him. Zechariah, son of Jehadiah, was killed in his native Jerusalem. (laughs) Isaiah, we understand, was killed by his native Israelites, sorely in half, possibly. Respected to a degree abroad, you see that with Jonah, but not honoured at home. That was the lot of the prophet. Perhaps it was to do with the fact that they had known them all their life. You know, little Jerry, who used to throw stones at cats, is now claiming to be a mouthpiece of the Lord Almighty as Jeremiah. But of course Jesus was more than a prophet, wasn't he? And there wouldn't be the sin and mistakes that would have accompanied a prophet throughout their life. They wouldn't be able to look back on things that Jesus had done to them that were nasty. But that only makes their unbelief the more astonishing, doesn't it? And Jesus is astonished, verse 6, and he marvelled because of their unbelief. He's unable to perform any great miracles, it tells you in the verse before, because of their unbelief. Partly because Jesus has linked his miracles to belief to faith, as requiring of them, of the one before he gives the miracle. You know, no faith, no miracles. And partly because he's applying the principle that we saw in Mark 4. Those who have get more. Those who have not get what, even their, what they have taken away. They have zero faith here. So Jesus won't give them any more reason to have faith. If they'd had some, then he would have given them some more reasons. He would have given them some miracles to increase their faith. But because they have none, he won't do it. And in fact, Jesus acts in judgment here, in effect, and moves away to the other villages. We'll see the same principle applied in the second point. But before we get there, it's worth pausing for a few moments to think through how this applies to our contemporary situation. We're not Old Testament prophets. We're not Jesus, either. But Jesus' words, I think, will ring true for us. It's harder sometimes to talk about our faith to those who are our close friends and family than sometimes it is to someone that we don't know all that well. Partly because I think we're aware that we uh, risk losing something in our relationship, we risk a rupture there, and we feel that we lose more. But also because these people know us very well, don't they? They know the mistakes that we've made. They knew us when we were less mature, human and spiritually. They've seen us say one thing and do the other. But remember that Jesus doesn't stop preaching here. It's just harder. He preaches to them. And just to encourage you, in the end, his brothers from his hometown will come to believe, even though they don't initially believe. James is almost certainly the James who wrote the book of James. And Judah, probably the one who wrote the book of Jude. So even the hardest of situations here, even the hardest of hearts, can be turned around. But for now, Jesus moves on. He's been rejected at home, but now he's proclaimed abroad. Let me read those verses to you, 7 to 11. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Jesus here sends his disciples on what we probably call today a short-term mission trip. When I was a student worker over in Lancaster, the Christian Union used to encourage the students to go on short-term mission trips. There was an annual one to an Eastern European country, and there'd be a dozen or so students raising money uh, through the year so that they could go on a one-week trip to the former communist bloc. We did point out to the Christian Union that for the same money as sending a dozen students for a week, we could pay for a native full-time pastor for two years, but it never seemed to make any difference uh, as we talked that through with them. The fruit from the missions as well never seemed to be that much. But what it did do, though, is infuse and prepare the students for overseas mission. And not just short-term mission, but long-term mission. One in particular I know is as a principal at a Bible college now in Eastern Europe who went on one of these mission trips. He was a mature student to, to start with. But here in this part we see that this is for the people and for the village of Israel, yes, but it's also partly for the training and formation of the disciples. He sends them out as mini mission teams of two. Teams, if you read the New Testament, are actually more the norm. The Apostle Paul's nearly always got someone with him. He doesn't often go by himself. He goes in a little team. And it also establishes them as credible witnesses for what is to follow. Jewish law required two or three witnesses to establish a testimony for or against someone. So they were to act as preachers, as healers, but also as witnesses as they went out to these towns and villages. And he gives them the same task that he's been doing. They're to preach and heal, and he also gives them authority to cast out demons. And as they go, they're to learn the valuable lessons of God's provision for them. If God gives us a task, he actually provides the means for us to do that task. That's the way that it works. So they are to take a staff, an aid for the journey, but only one, if we're to read the other Gospels with this. They're to take no food, no bag to hoard things in or keep things in. No money. But Jesus does allow them sandals. uh, This is why we've got to be careful taking this to the 21st century. He's not saying you must wear sandals uh, as you go on a mission trip. I know some Christians like that. But uh, we'll not go there. But also, not more than one tunic, not more than one top to take with them. They're to take the bare minimum and look for God to provide. This is not going to be a magical, musical, mystery tour of the Middle East. This was to be living by faith. Living on a shoestring. They were to be as Jesus, who was without a home, who had given up his worldly possessions, who lived by faith. But it's important to note that this is a sorry, a principle, not a prescription. It's not saying that money that missionaries can't take money with them as they go away. Or handbags, carrier bags, shoulder bags are sinful for the Christian because we mustn't have bags. Later on in Luke's Gospel, as the cross approaches, Jesus will say this to his disciples. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. He said to them, but now the one who has the money bag, take it. And likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. He actually sort of changes the command as, it, as things move on and in a different situation. Later on in the lives of the apostles, they will seemingly have homes at points. They will take their wives along with them on their journeys. So this is no more a lasting ordinance than the command about staying in one person's house. We'll come to that in a minute. What matters though is that they're learning to live by faith. That is what he's teaching them. And that is harder to learn that the more things that you have. Because when we have more things, our tendency is to trust in those things. We trust in our wallets, in our wardrobes, in our warehouses more than in God's provision. When we don't have those things, we're forced back onto God, aren't we? We're forced to ask for our daily bread and really mean it. There are amazing tales of missionaries and ministers and just regular Christians who have applied these things almost literally, living hand to mouth for the sake of the gospel. Praise the Lord for them. They did amazing things and do amazing things. But it's not a requirement of taking out the gospel. The requirement is that we do it, trusting in the Lord to provide, whatever we start with. We don't need a massive war chest before we can share the gospel, that's what it's saying. We can just get out and do it. And as we go, the Lord will provide what we need. He even provides them here in verse 10, places for them to stay. In those days, people would regularly take strangers and travellers into their homes. It was common hospitality in the Middle East. I doubt this would work the same way in Otley. You know, you couldn't just rock up to someone's door, ring the doorbell and say, hey, I'm going to stay at your house. It doesn't really work that way. Of course, we do still see it in church, don't we, wonderfully. I'm sure we all know of families and individuals who've taken in people who needed a place to stay for a while. It's wonderful to be able to see that care within church. But in those days, it would happen. we almost complete strangers, just travellers through the town. And the apostles were to take advantage of this kind of hospitality in the towns and the villages they visited. But with one condition. Whoever offered them hospitality, they were to stay in that house and that house alone. If they agreed to stay in a house and it turned out that they were terrible cooks and loud snorers, they had to stay there. That was the deal. If they agreed to stay in a house and it turned out they were cordon blur chefs and had an indoor pool, they were also to stay there. Wherever they'd agreed to stay, they had to stay. They were not to hop from one place to another looking for a better deal. They were not to take hospitality and then sort of snub it and go to somewhere, someone else. They were to take the hospitality they were offered and not go sniffing around for a better deal. That would not be fitting for their mission because they're not on holiday, they're not looking for a better reviewed place up the road at an Airbnb. They were there with a message. They had an important message to deliver. But it was a message that some would reject. We see that in verse 11, don't we? We read that to you again. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. If they were rejected in a place, they were to shake the dust off their feet and move on. The whole shaking off of the dust was what Jews would do when they left the Gentile country. Removing all contaminants before continuing into Jewish testimony uh, territory. It would be like us Yorkshire folk uh, going on a walk in the dales and accidentally straying over into Lancashire. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and on the way back, you get the sign, you know, big white roads. <coughs> Wipe your feet before you go back into Yorkshire. You know, better get all that horrible Lancashire mud off your wellies so you're fit to come back into Yorkshire. That was sort of the idea. It was a sign of contempt. And it was also the sign of a witness that you were not considered their kin anymore. They were to treat these peoples in a way like Gentiles. It was saying to them, this village or town is not part of my people anymore. They have forfeited that privilege by not listening to the Messiah. Now, this is a tricky one to apply to our 21st century situation. I know that some take a very harsh line on this. You know, if they won't accept the gospel, move on and try somewhere else not sure that's the point. After all, Jesus several times goes to towns and cities that don't initially accept him. So think about Jerusalem, he goes there many times, but he's not received in a good way each time he goes. Later on, he'll send out not just 12, but 72 disciples on mission. Would they not be visiting some of these places again, possibly? I don't think this was a writing off for these places forever. And I don't think that we should write off people forever just because they initially reject the gospel. I'm sure that many of us, probably if not most of us, did not respond to the gospel positively the first time we heard it. We had to hear it many times before we finally responded positively. What it does do here, though, is apply that principle we saw in chapter four. Those who have, get more. The disciples stay around and they tell them more. Those who don't have, Lose what they've got. The disciples leave and hear no more of the message on that mission trip. And if they reject the message, they're really rejecting Jesus by proxy. They may not have met him, but rejecting the disciples and their message is really rejecting Jesus and his message. they not to take it personally because actually this is a rejection of him. But what is the message that they bring? What is it that is so rejected by people? Well, that's our final point. Call to repent. Let me read to you verses 12 and 13. So they went out and proclaimed that the people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed them with oil, many who were sick, and healed them. The message that Jesus sends them out with is one of repentance. They're to proclaim that people should repent. Now, in one sense, that should come as no surprise. That was Jesus' message too. So back in Mark 1, 15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. They were doing what Jesus is doing, so that's what they preach. They preach his message. Now repentance sounds a very austere, a harsh word, an unpopular word. But here it is. They're to preach that people are to turn. To stop living for themselves and start living for the living God. The word in Greek literally means to change your mind. It's a change of heart and mind that leads to a change of action. That leads to a turning away from sin, away from sin and towards God. It's not as is commonly batted about just saying sorry. That you hear sometimes. It will involve that, but that's not the whole. It involves the intention and resolve to not think or act in that way again. It involves action, not just emotion that's stirred up within us. A helpful example of it in the New Testament is the Thessalonians. This is what Paul wrote about them in 1 Thessalonians 1. You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. See the picture there? That picture of turning away from something to something else. Doing an about turn, a 180, away from sin and idols... And to the living God in faith. For believers, often there's that decisive moment of repentance, isn't there? Where we renounce our sin and we turn to Christ. We understand that. But we also know, don't we, that it doesn't stop there. Martin Luther, who we're going to be thinking about tonight, wrote this. He said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. That is that we keep turning from sin and keep turning to God to serve the living and true God. That was the very first, actually, of Martin Luther's 95 theses that he, he uh, put up on the, uh, the uh, Wittenberg Cathedral. What he's saying there is believers' life doesn't just start with repentance. It starts a life of repentance. It begins when we take hold of the steering wheel of our life and do a U-turn, if you like. And put our lives back on the straight and narrow. But it continues as we keep moving the steering wheel. Every time we start to drift off the straight and narrow way. We all have that in our lives, don't we? As we start to have that inbuilt bias. As we all have that inbuilt bias to sort of stray off the track. If you're into cars, it's like our tracking is off. That's really what it's like. We all go astray. But repentance is turning back. And the disciples were called uh, to call people to repentance. Interestingly, Luke's word for this, he gives you a parallel passage. He words it slightly differently. He doesn't word it proclaiming repentance, but preaching the gospel. So, Luke 9, verse 6. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. When we put those two together, we learn an important truth. There is no preaching the gospel without proclaiming repentance. Repentance is a necessary part of the gospel. It's the flip side of faith, it's true. When we turn to Christ, it's implied that we turn away from sin and everything else. But perhaps in our culture, especially, that needs to be made less implicit and more explicit. If we preach that you can turn to Christ without preaching that that means you must turn away from your sin, then we're not giving the full message, we're not giving the full gospel. And knowing the human heart, and knowing my own heart, we're tempted, aren't we, to want it both ways. We want to hold to Christ, but we also want to hold on to our sin. We want to turn to Christ, but somehow without turning away from our sin. But we can't do both. Because the gospel includes, entails, demands repentance. And that means two things for us. One... If we're to follow in the footsteps of the disciples, if we're to do as our Lord Jesus did and preach the gospel, then we must preach repentance. Now that doesn't mean shouting at people in the street to repent. It doesn't mean we're going around with a billboard saying, repent, the end is nigh. I don't think people know what nigh means, and I don't think they know what the word repent means. It may be for that reason as well, that you might not even use the term. But we need to have the idea, we need to explain what that means. But however we do it, we must do it. It's the unpopular side of the gospel, isn't it? Many people want Christ, forgiveness, heaven. But very few people want it if it means that they have to change. If it means that they can no longer say whatever they want, do whatever they want, sleep with whomever they want, believe whatever they want. For many, remaining their own boss, their own Lord, is more important than Christ. But as Christ himself will say later on in Mark's Gospel, Mark eight thirty-six, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world, and yet forfeit his soul? We can't tell people that they can come to Christ without repentance, without a change of mind that leads to a change of life. Otherwise, in Mark's language in the verse before, they will lose their life. Because we can't do it. That's the first thing it means for us. We must preach repentance. But number two, it also means for us that we need to repent. You need to repent. I need to repent. Not the person sat next to you, you. Not the person on the street outside, you. Me. I can say that with 100% certainty. Whoever you are, however good you think you are, you need to repent. Most of us are probably quite aware of things that we need to repent of. If we're not, then perhaps we should take some time later to think that through. But if you've never repented before, if you've never decisively turned away from your sin and turned to Christ, you need to do that today. Turn from your sins, whatever they may be. Turn from your idols, whatever they are. And turn to the living and true God. Put your trust in Him alone. Christ has done all that we need to come to Him. Christ has died on the cross for our sins so that He can forgive us, so that we can come to Him in faith and repentance, and He is able to offer us pardon and forgiveness. So if you've never done that, do that today. But if you have decisively turned away from your sin, then just a reminder this morning actually, we need to keep repenting, keep on turning away from sin in our lives. And back to Christ keep on taking hold of that steering wheel and making a course adjustment and we'll need to keep doing that until we reach glory all of us need to do that so this is our life's work this is what we need to do each day each week perhaps there are things that you need to repent of that you've been putting off we'll do it today confess your sin to God and resolve in your mind and heart to leave it behind Hebrews 3.13 says, But exhort, encourage one another daily, every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That was written to believers. So don't let yourself be that surprisingly hostile response when you hear the gospel of repentance. Don't let your heart become hardened, rejecting Jesus and embracing sin. But let's keep repenting. And let's keep preaching the gospel. And let's pray that many would respond in a surprisingly friendly way to the gospel of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we do have a gospel. Father, thank you that it offers us forgiveness. Father, thank you that it offers us eternity with you. Father, help us to preach the whole gospel. Father, help us not to leave bits out as we talk to our friends and family and neighbours. And Father, for ourselves, keep our hearts close to you. Father, help us to keep repentance, keep turning away from our sin, not to cherish it, but to cherish you more. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.